Happy Sunday and welcome to the Jeremiah Patterson Show. Happy to have you here today. All right, here's a question. Do you know the old McDonald's song? There's a good chance that you're probably shaking your head right now. Well, lucky for you, in 1952, Democratic presidential candidate Adlai Stevenson played an ad for his presidential campaign. This uh, Essentially, his ad was a political rendition of the old McDonald's song. Listen. Old MacDonald had a farm back in 31. Conditions filled him with alarm back in 31. Not a chick chick here or a moo cow there, just broken down farmland everywhere. And Farmer Mac doesn't want to go back to the days when there wasn't a moo or quack. To the days of 1931, when he didn't have bread when the day was done. Farmer Mac knows what to do, election day of 52. Gonna go out with everyone in the USA to vote for Adley Stevenson to keep his farm this way. With a vote vote here and a vote vote there and a vote for Stevenson everywhere. For if it's good for Mac, you see, it's good for you and it's good for me. All America loves that farm. Vote Stevenson today. It's kind of catchy, right? The old traditional McDonald's song. But it's also a smart political strategy to draw people and to attract people to your presidential campaign. Ultimately, in that election, Stevenson got clobbered by his Republican presidential candidate, as by his Republican presidential opponent, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and so he ran again in 1956. This time, one of the central messages of his campaign was reducing the number of nuclear weapons in the United States, essentially that the United States had. The incumbent Republican president, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, basically said no, that that would not be a good idea because it would give Russia the upper hand when it came to the nuclear arms race. And so in that election, he lost again. But he wasn't done. In 1960, Adlai Stevenson considered running for president for a third time, but ultimately decided not to. And right around the time that he made that critical political decision that he wasn't going to run for president again, he received a surprise phone call. It was an invitation from the Russian ambassador to the United States. And in that phone call, he told Stevenson that he wanted, he wanted him to come to the Russian embassy because he had gifts for him. According to Stevenson's recollection, they gave him wine, fruit, and Russian caviar. And while those seemed like nice gifts and like extravagant gifts, that wasn't the central topic of the meeting. That wasn't really why the Russian ambassador wanted to invite him to the Russian embassy. They wanted to make him a pitch. And in that meeting, the Russian ambassador pulled out a slip of, a slip, a slip of paper from his pocket from the Russian government. And this is what it said. Quote, we are concerned with the future. We are concerned with the future and that America has the right president. When we compare all the possible presidential candidates in the United States, we feel that Mr. Stevenson is best for mutual understanding and progress towards peace. These are the views not only of the Russian president, but of the presidium. We, in our hearts, all favor him and ask him which way we could be of assistance to those forces in the United States favor friendly relations. Could the Soviet press assist Mr. Stevenson's personal success? How? Should the press praise him, and if so, for what? Should it criticize him, and if so, for what? Mr. Stevenson will know best what would help him. End quote. So the Russian government invites him to their embassy and tells him to uh, run and then offers assistance, essentially so Russia could get the president they prefer installed into the White House. And so they also reportedly offer him Russian money. So he's in this odd situation, right? This inexplicable situation. And so what do you do in that circumstance? 
Well, when Adlai Stevenson got home, he took detailed notes of what had transpired in that exchange with the Russian ambassador. Stevenson wrote, quote, I made my following points. My thanks for this expression of Russian confidence. My thanks for this proffer of aid. This is where it gets good. Quote, but also my misgivings about the propriety of wisdom of any interference, direct or indirect, in the American election. I said to him that even if I was was a candidate i could not accept the assistance preferred i believed i made it clear to him that i consider the offer of assistance highly improper indiscreet and dangerous to all concerned end quote for years this whole meeting stayed secret the public didn't find out until 17 years later but when it happened, Ally Stevenson did report it to someone. He did report that odd and inexplicable exchange with the Russian ambassador to someone. He reported it to Dwight D. Eisenhower, his arch-political enemy for the good of the country. The guy who had beaten him not once, but twice for the bid of President of the United States. In part because he thought that the U.S. government should know that a foreign power had, had offered him essentially had come to him and offered assistance for his presidential run. Now, I, I have told this story before, but I believe it's worth revisiting right now. If you recall, when Donald Trump was running for president, he did the opposite and invited foreign in assistance in a presidential election. He said, hey, Russia, if you're listening, take a look at Hillary Clinton's emails. See what you can find. Russia then acted on that announcement and actually did it. From June, 20, from June 2015 from June 2015 to November 2016, Russian hackers penetrated computers at the Democratic National Committee. Through this cyber attack, they gained access to, to personal emails of Democratic officials and gave their information to a global outlook outlet called, excuse me, to a global media outlet called WikiLeaks. They then divulged that information on a public website. Both the CIA and the FBI believe that those targeted hacks on the DNC, that both believe that those targeted hacks on the DNC were by the Russian government to further Donald Trump's chances of winning the election and hurt Hillary Clinton's chances. During the 2016 presidential election, Trump continued to question the intelligence community's unanimous assessment that Russia was behind the DNC hack. When he became president, he kept that behavior up, denying that Russia had interfered in the 2016 presidential elections. On July 17, 2018, after meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Helsinki at a press conference, President Trump asserted, quote, I accept our intelligence community's conclusion that meddling took place, but it could have been other people also. There's a lot of people out there. End quote. So he continued to deny the unanimous assessment by the intelligence community. And on that same day, he said that he believed Putin and Russia definitely didn't interfere in the 2016 presidential elections. And this has been sort of like the soundtrack of this administration. I mean, it is evident that the president of the United States, President Donald J. Trump, will never vehemently condemn the Russians. But that may also have some long-term ramifications for us as a country. In 2019, the Pentagon published a white paper, um, a white paper report, and the title is called, quote, Russian Strategic Intentions, end quote. This is from that Pentagon report, quote, while the United States focused on executing the global war on terror, Russia actively pursued malign influence in all regions of the world to mitigate their inferior conventional capability. Russia has a growing Russia has a growing and demonstrated capacity and willingness to exercise malign influence in Europe and abroad, including the United States. 
countering Russian gray zone efforts are not specific to just the U.S. Defense Department, but must be part of a whole U.S. government effort that leverages all limits of national power, all elements of national power. Russia's gray zone tactics are most effective when the target is deeply polarized or lacks the capacity to resist and respond effectively to Russian aggression. Conversely, countries that are resilient against attempts to divide their populace or to apply economic coercion into wield proxy forces, those entities can better handle subconventional threats from Russia. End quote. So once again, that was a Pentagon report released in 2019 about Russian strategic intentions. And it sort of was unsettling to digest that information because if you just listen back to these it says that the countries that will have a problem with Russia is those who are, quote, deeply polarized and lack the capacity to resist and respond effectively to Russian aggression. Well, look at what just happened now here in the United States. You may recall at the end of the show on last Saturday that there was some breaking, last Sunday, excuse me, that there was some breaking news about this Russian cyber attack on some governmental agencies. It was reporting from the New York Times and then shortly after other networks began to confirm this information. And then the story sort of evolved. It's, the story has since evolved. It has gotten bigger and bigger over the course of this week. So I believe it is important to start from the outset here and sort of extrapolate from public reporting and what we can understand um, so far. Okay, nine months ago, in March of this year, the United States was starting to see the coronavirus pandemic become more prevalent. Cases and deaths were beginning to rise more, and people were rushing to the stores to secure paper towels, tissues, and other essential items. Well, right around the time... Well, essentially, right around that time, the Russians used a malicious code to hack into updating software called Orion. This Orion software was created by a company called SolarWinds, which monitors the computer's network of, essentially, of business and government for outages. That malware essentially gave hackers the ability to access any organization's networks, and so they could then steal information upon hacking into their networks. We know that at least six government agencies were hacked at the time. According to Reuters just last year, um, Vinod Kumar, a security researcher, alerted SolarWinds that anyone, anyone could access their update server by simply using the password SolarWinds123. Well, now it appears that someone used the password SolarWinds123 and hacked. And so here we are with multiple intelligence officials now saying that this this may have been one of the worst cyber attacks in American history. Oh, and did I mention that President Trump decided to fire and publicly destroy uh, Chris Krebs, the head of CISA, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and also the Secretary of Defense? I'm sure that's great. On Friday, the Las, uh, the Las Vegas Review-Journal reported, quote, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency said in its most detailed comments yet that the intrusion had compromised federal agencies as well as critical infrastructure in a sophisticated attack that was hard to detect and will be able to undo. CISA did not say which agencies or infrastructure had been breached or what information take or in, what information was taken in an attack that it previously said appeared to have begun in March. March. CISA's public statement said, quote, This threat actor has demonstrated sophistication and complex tradecraft in these intrusions. CISA experts 
that CISA expects that removing the threat from the threat actor from compromising environments will be highly complex and challenging. End quote. In terms of transparency here from members of Congress who appear to members of Congress um, essentially appear to be bewildered after receiving an, an intelligence briefing earlier this week. This was a summary from this is a summary from uh, a summary write-up from the Homeland Security and Oversight Committees. Quote. After receiving a classified member briefing from the Trump administration today, we are left with more questions than answers, end quote. And, you know, that, that then raises some questions of what's going on and how do we learn and receive more information on this. And if not that, then maybe it is just that the entire U.S. government is trying to learn more about this situation. I mean, this was reporting from David Smith at The Guardian on Friday, quote, The U.S. government is still in dark over is still in the dark over how deeply Russian hackers penetrated its networks during the worst ever cyber attack on federal agencies. Members of Congress warned on Friday, end quote. So this still could be a very inexplicable situation, even as intelligence officials are still trying to essentially digest this information and look into what happened here. We know that at least six governmental agencies were targeted by the Russians. They include the United States Department of Energy, um, Defense, Homeland Security, Commerce, Treasury, and State. Also, the National Nuclear Security Administration has been reportedly breached, according to Politico. Dozens of security, dozens more of security and other technological firms, such as non-governmental, were hacked as well, including the United States Postal Service and the National Institute of Health. Yesterday, Bloomberg reported that close to 200 organizations were hacked by Russia as part of this massive cyber attack on SolarWinds. Also now, several government agencies have been compromised, according to Bloomberg's reporting. Microsoft is now saying that other countries were targeted as well, including Canada, Mexico, Belgium, Spain, the UK, Israel, and the United Arab, Arab of Emirates. End quote. Uh, so Microsoft said, quote, it's certain that the number of location of victims will keep growing. So essentially Microsoft is saying that, yes, this hack has been detected in these countries, but it's, it's, it's almost inevitable that this could get bigger. Here in the United States, it is still unclear what information was stolen by the Russians, but this cyber attack has received some earnest reactions. Um, Thomas Bozert, he was the Deputy Homeland Security Advisor to President George H to President George W. Bush, and most recently the Homeland Security Advisor to President Trump. And he said um, he has just written sort of like a startling op-ed at the New York Times. All right, quote. At the worst possible time, when the United States is at its most vulnerable, during a presidential transition and a devastating public health crisis, the networks of the federal government and much of corporate America are compromised by a foreign nation. We need to understand the scale and significance of what is happening. Last week, the cybersecurity firm Firefly said it had been hacked and that its clients, which include the United States government, had been placed at risk. This week, we learned that SolarWinds, a publicly traded company that provides co software to tens of thousands of government and corporate customers, was also hacked. The attackers gained access to SolarWinds' software before updates on before updates of the of that software were made available to its customers. 
unsuspecting customers then downloaded a corrupt a corrupted version of the software which included a hidden backdoor that gave hackers access to the victims' network this is what is called a supply chain attack meaning the pathway into targeted networks relies on access to any to a supplier Supply chain attacks require significant resources and sometimes years to execute. They are almost always the product of a nation state. Evidence in the evidence in the SolarWinds attack points to the Russian intelligence agency known as SVR, whose tradecraft is among whose tradecraft, excuse me, is among the most advanced in the world. According to SolarWinds SEC filings, um, the malware was on the software from March to June of 2020. The number of organizations that downloaded the, corru the corrupted update could be as many as 18,000, which includes most federal government unclassified networks and more than 425 Fortune, 5, Fortune 500 companies. Um, the magnitude of this, of this ongoing attack is hard to overstate. The Russians have access to a considerable number of important and sensitive networks for six to nine months. The Russian SVR will surely have it have its access to further exploit and gain administrative control over the networks it considers priority targets. For those targets, the hackers will have long ago moved past their entry point, covered their tracks, and gained what experts call persistent access, meaning the ability to infiltrate and control networks in a way that is hard to detect and remove. While the Russians did not have the time to gain complete control over every network they hacked, they most certainly did gain it over hundreds of them. It will take years to know for certain which networks the Russians control and which ones they just occupy. The logical conclusion is that we must act as if the Russian government has control of all networks it has penetrated. But it is unclear what the Russians intend to do next. The access that the Russians now enjoy could be used for far more than just simply spying. The actual and perceived control of so many important networks could be easily could be easily used to undermine public and consumer trust in data, written communications, and services. In the networks the Russians control, they have the power to destroy or alter data and impersonate legitimate people. Domestic and geopolitical tensions could intensify, excuse me, could ex escalate quite easily if they use their access for malign influence and misinformation. Both hallmarks, both hallmarks of Russian behavior. The response must be broader than patching networks. While all indicators point to the Russian government, the United States, and ideally its allies must publicly and formally attribute responsibility for these attacks. If it is Russia, President Trump must make it clear that Vladimir Putin that Vladimir make it clear to Vladimir Putin that these actions are unacceptable. The United States military and intelligence community must be placed on increased alert. All elements of national power must be placed on the table. While we must reserve our right to unilaterally, while we must reserve our right to unilateral self-defense, allies must be allied, allies must be rallied to be to help to the cause. The importance of coalitions will be especially important to punishing Russia and navigating the crisis with uncontrolled escalation. President Trump is on the verge of leaving behind a federal government and perhaps a large number of majority of major industries. 
compromised by the Russian government. He must use whatever leverage he can muster to protect the United States and severely punish the Russians. President-elect Joe Biden must begin planning to take charge of this crisis. He has to assume the communications about this matter that are being read by Russia and assume that any government, any government data or email could be falsified. At this moment, the two teams must find a way to cooperate. President Trump must get past his election grievances, must get past his grievances about the election, and govern for the remainder of his term. This moment requires unity, purpose, and discipline. An intrusion so brazen on and of this size and scope cannot be tolerated by any sovereign nation. We are sick, distracted, and now under cyber attack. Leadership is essential. End quote. Once again, that was Thomas Bozert um, writing an op-ed at the at the New York Times about this massive Russian cyber attack. It was just startling, just blistering report. Um, in response to this Russian cyber attack so far, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo publicly indicated that it was Russia who did this. Well, finally, after staying completely silent for so long on this matter, yesterday President Trump downplayed this Russian cyber attack and said it was China. Yeah, the, those are the real people who did it. Adam Schiff, um, the chairman of the House Intelligence Community, uh, excuse me, the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee said this on Twitter, quote, Another day, another scandalous betrayal of our national security by this president. Another dishonest tweet that sounds like it could have been written in the Kremlin. Another obsequious display towards Putin. And yet another reason that Trump can't leave office fast enough. End quote. Here's what President-elect Joe Biden said in response to, to this massive Russian cyber attack. He said, quote, We need to disrupt and deter our adversaries from undertaking significant cyber attacks in the first place. We will do that by, among other things, imposing substantial cost on those responsible for such malicious attacks, including in coordination with our allies and partners. There's a lot we don't know yet, but what we do know but what we do now, excuse me, but what we do know is a matter of great concern. End quote. We know that the Trump administration got rid of the key positions of White House Cybersecurity Coordinator and State Department Cybersecurity Chief, State Department Cybersecurity Policy Chief. We're never going to need those, right? We'll never have like this massive cyber attack, especially now by the Russians. Brandon Valerino. Um, a Marine Corps University scholar and advisor to a U.S. Cyber Defense Commission told the Associated Press, quote, It's been a frustrating time the last four years. I mean, nothing has happened seriously at all in cybersecurity. End quote. Within the past hour today, um, Forbes magazine has just published an article about the director, about the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, about the former director of CISA, Mr. Chris Krebs. Uh, Mr. Krebs said, quote, it happened on my watch. Chris Krebs says Russia exploited outdated systems for cyber attack. This is just the lead on that article. Quote, the former director of the Federal Cybersecurity Agency. Cybersecurity agency Chris Krebs, who the president fired last month for defending the integrity of the 2020 presidential elections, said the wide-scale cyber attack on the federal government said um, that was made public last week was almost certainly conducted by Russia, and it and was possible because of a seam in defenses. End quote. This is where the article begins. Quote. Speaking on CNN's State of the Union, Krebs, who once who 
who was once the director of the Cybersecurity and, Infra and Infrastructure Security Agency when the cyber attack is thought of to have begun, as early as March, said that he was not aware of the hack until it was detected by cybersecurity firm Firefly earlier this month. Quote, we missed it. A bunch of other folks missed it, said Krebs, explaining the hack was possible because of outdated systems across government agencies that had not been optimized to proactively defend against an unknown attacks. Quote, this was a never before seen this was a never before seen capability that that computer systems were designed to detect said Krebs, emphasizing that the Russians are, quote, exceptionally good at this sort of work, end quote. Uh, Mr. Krebs goes on to say, quote, this was not a drive-by shooting on the information, excuse me, this is another cybersecurity official, quote, this was not a drive-by shooting on the information highway. This was a sniper round from someone a mile away from, our, from your house. It was going to take specific operations to detect this breach. It was a backdoor into the American supply chain that separates this, form, that separates this from thousands or other cases that we've worked with throughout our careers, end quote. Earlier this week, um, one of the top, um, excuse me, one of the most prominent Republican senators in Washington, D.C., um, uh, Senator, Republican Senator Mitt Romney, said that this is the equivalent of the Russians essentially flying bomber jets over the United States. And yet the president has come out today saying, uh, yesterday saying, ah, you know, when I look at this Russian cyber attack, you know, I really think it's China. There's nothing really to be concerned about here. So one of the largest and worst cybersecurity attacks in our nation's history has just been found out, has just been discovered. We know that it transpired back in March, nine months ago, and the president is not condemning the Russians on this. I mean, it's not surprising, but this is dangerous. I mean, you just go back and look at that Pentagon report again. The countries who will have a difficult time with Russia are those who are, quote, deeply polarized and lack the capacity to resist and respond effectively to Russian aggression, end quote. And so now that we know that this has happened, I do feel it is important to keep an eye on this story over the course of this week, even if more information is divulged based on public reporting and by cybersecurity officials working in the federal government. So just keep an eye on this story as this story continues to unfold. But here's one more thing before we head to commercial break here. One of the worst and largest cybersecurity attacks in our nation's history has just transpired, and the president has said nothing. Once again, that is not astonishing, but it is dangerous. This massive Russian cyber attack poses an existential threat to U.S. national security. And this is a time when we need leadership, pivotal leadership, crucial leadership, and competent leadership. Not ignorance and redirection. If you looked at America like a bird, and that was all you knew, would you really understand it with just that point of view? We've got a different way to look at it from right here on the ground. We don't just see United States, we see United Towns. From where we sit, just down the street, near the post office, by the park, when we stop and look around, what we see are sparks. Sparks of hope, of compassion, of communities who stand firm, when neighbors lift each other up, expecting nothing in return. 
We're grateful for what you bring and all the sparks you've shown and the thousands of towns that we get to call home. They finally did it. It took them a while, but they did it. Congress has just reached a deal on the coronavirus relief bill. This was reporting from NBC News today, quote, After months of stalemate, Congress struck a deal on a nearly $900 billion COVID-19 relief package that includes a new round of direct payments and help for jobless Americans, families, and businesses struggling in the pandemic. Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, quote, More help is on the way. End quote. The agreement includes stimulus checks up to $600 per person based on income, a federal unemployment insurance bonus of $300 per week, over $284 billion more in loans for businesses struggling to pay rent and workers, vaccine distribution funds, and $82 billion in funding for colleges and schools. It also includes the Democrats' priority of $25 billion in rental assistance and an extinction of the eviction moratorium. End quote. We know that lawmakers in Washington, D.C. are expected to vote on this crucial um, Senate package, excuse me, to vote on this crucial uh, coronavirus relief package later on today and into tomorrow. But in that process, the coronavirus pandemic is just getting worse. As of today, more than 317,000 Americans have died from the coronavirus and more than 17.8 million Americans have been infected. Here in South Carolina, the governor's wife has just tested positive for COVID-19. Um, however, she is reportedly asymptomatic, but cases are still rising here as well. In Georgia, where those crucial Senate runoffs are happening, they have just crossed a milestone of more than 500,000 coronavirus cases. Reportedly, 1 in 21 people living in Georgia have tested positive for the coronavirus since the pandemic began 11 months ago. Today, they reported 5,120 additional coronavirus cases. In Arizona, they reported 5,336 new cases and 34 deaths today. Dr. Andrew Carroll in Arizona said that he is worried that Christmas will bring a coronavirus surge in that state if residents travel. Said, quote, it's overwhelming. It really is like a war zone with walls. The teams are overcrowded, and even though we're trying our best, we are running on empty. Definitely what we what. <clears throat> Definitely what we are seeing is the outcome of late November. We are already seeing so many regrets out there from the thanks from Thanksgiving. Please listen to these scientists. Listen to the physicians. End quote. Dr. Gerald, a leading member of the Arizona of the University of Arizona's COVID-19 um, modeling team, appeared to have echoed that statement, saying that the pandemic is going to cause a quote major humanitarian crisis during the Christmas and New Year's holiday. He ends with this, quote, we're pulling down about five, about 50,000 new cases a week. Hospitals and ICUs are greater, are greater than 90% occupancy and about 500 people are dying a week. We need Arizonans to do two things and they're actually pretty straightforward. Stay away from each other. And when you can do that, consistently wear a mask, end quote. We know that in Arkansas, um, yesterday, they surpassed 200,000 coronavirus cases with more than 1,000 people in the hospital and 177 on ventilators. State Democrats are now urging the governor to, to, to essentially close the bars in that state and to issue more restrictions. Today, Arizona, today, Arkansas reported 1,535 new coronavirus cases and 46 additional deaths. 
In Missouri, this was the headline at the Kansas City Star today, quote, all but 10 Missouri counties at COVID tipping point ahead of Christmas, data shows, end quote. Essentially, the last, the latest report um, from the White House Coronavirus Task Force indicates that Missouri is in the red zone and that more COVID-19 restrictions need to be implemented. In California, hospitalizations have now doubled their summer peak, and it's getting worse. This was the headline today at NPR, quote, As COVID-19 cases soar, overwhelmed California hospitals worry about rationing care. The article continues, quote, California hospitals are stretched to their limits as ICUs are filling up and COVID-19 cases continue to soar, leaving some facilities facing the prospect of not being able to provide critical care for everyone who needs it. Nearly all of California is under stay-at-home orders as ICU capacity statewide hovers around 2%. In Southern California, there in Southern California and 12 county San Juan Valley area, ICU capacity has been exhausted, leaving some facilities to go into surge mode, putting critical patients in other parts of the hospital, like emergency rooms or operating or operating recovery rooms. Brad Spellberg, the chief medical officer of L.A. County USC Medical Center on one of the largest hospitals in the state, told NPR member station KPCC that means some patients are waiting for hours for care as hospitals struggle to free up beds as quickly as possible. End quote. California's governor is now urging more people to join the California Health Corps as coronavirus cases are surging in that state. This was him speaking today. Uh, we couldn't be more pleased by the incredible professionalism of our nurses and doctors, our, our professional representatives uh, that came together across many uh, differences and organized uh, around a framework of providing more flexibility, more surge capacity within the system uh, by providing scope of practice reforms, by allowing us to utilize our existing resources in a more resourceful way. I want to thank all of the representatives for putting aside, again, those differences uh, and meeting this moment head on to provide the flexibility that is required uh, to meet this moment. Uh, we have an executive order that went out uh, that will provide Provide flexibility through June 30th. This is temporary flexibility on staffing ratios, on scope of practice for nurse practitioners, EMTs, uh, and others. Uh, we are going out now uh, to deeply find the kind of talent, though, that is necessary beyond the scope of practice changes and beyond the regulatory changes to make sure that we have the adequate workforce uh, looking uh, for mental health experts looking uh, for more EMTs, more pharmacists, uh, looking for more phlebotomists, looking for more experts in respiratory care and the like, technicians, administrators, doctors, nurses. Uh, we are calling on you uh, to step up and step in and meet this moment. Uh, we have more licensed healthcare professionals in the state of California than any state in the nation, some 766,000 uh, professionals in the state of California. But we estimate we have the capacity to increase our ranks by an additional 37,000 plus professionals that are in that time of life where they again may have just recently retired or they're in the process of getting their license and their degrees. And so we are very, very hopeful uh, with this effort uh, that we will see a surge of individuals to be paid and compensated uh, to participate in the workforce uh, and distributed uh, throughout our care delivery system all around the state of California. 
Once again, California Democratic uh, Governor Gavin Newsom talking about essentially urging more people to join the California Health Corps as coronavirus cases are continuing to surge in that state. So as I said, the current situation is not good, and that COVID-19 relief package um, by Congress is something that millions of Americans really, really need right now. Stay with us. The last note is next. Meet the Ninja Foodie Air Fry Oven. Make fast, family-sized meals in the time it takes some ovens to preheat. With Ninja's superheated air, you can air fry for extra crispy, guilt-free, delicious results. And because it's a Ninja Foodie, it can do things that no other oven can. And even flip up and out of the way. The Ninja Foodie Air Fry Oven, the oven that crisps and flips away. When Richard Nixon became president in 1969, he appointed his campaign manager, John Mitchell, to be his attorney general. Mitchell was perceived as one of Nixon's close, um, close, adver- excuse me, close advisors and advocate for Nixon's 1968 campaign slogan, Law and Order. Ironically, Mitchell himself did not always follow the law. Upon being nominated attorney, upon being nominated for attorney general by Richard Nixon, um, Nixon requested that he not be vetted by the FBI. On top of that, his tenure as attorney general was terrible and just corrupt. He supported the use of wiretaps in national security cases without legally obtaining a court order. He also sabotaged the Paris Peace Accord and fiercely went after the president's political enemies and anti-war demonstrators. He also continuously violated the Constitution and helped the president's friends. But one of the most famous things he was implicated in was the Watergate break-in. Good evening. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards employed by the Watergate complex. At first, the police found nothing. Then they spied five men crouching behind some desks. Neither. The president, obviously, or anybody in the White House or anybody in authority in any of the committees working for the re-election of the president have any responsibility for it. That was John Mitchell you heard there speaking um, at the end of that clip there, speaking, saying, yeah, none of us uh, definitely totally had no involvement in this. That was not true. John Mitchell had a terrible legacy as attorney general. He assisted in the covering up of the Watergate scandal and left the Justice Department to become the head of the committee to reelect the president. So in the in that last clip there, you that was John Mitchell talking. He was the head of the committee to reelect the president. John Mitchell had deliberately planned the Watergate break in. Um, And he served as Richard Nixon's attorney general from 1969 to 1972. And it is said that he was one of the worst and most corrupt AGs in American history. But in the end, he went to prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. Today, a limousine brought former Attorney General John Mitchell to court. They used to call him the big enchilada at the White House. He came to be sentenced as a convicted felon. For 64 days, these men sat in Judge Sirica's courtroom. When the time came for a final statement, Mitchell and his lawyer had nothing to say. All eyes were on the man who is known as Maximum John. The judge wasted no time on a speech. Mitchell, Haldeman, and Ehrlichman each must serve at least two and a half years in prison, maybe as long as eight years. Judge Sirica would not comment on the case as he left the courthouse. John Mitchell left, growling, it could have been worse. He could have sentenced me to spend the rest of my life with Martha Mitchell. 
That was reporting from NBC News at the time when John Mitchell was sentenced to 19 months in prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. Um, you heard that uh, you heard there that John Mitchell said, at least I didn't, don't have to spend the rest of my life um, with with Martha Mitchell. Martha Mitchell was John Mitchell's wife until they all until they inevitably, excuse me, until they um, ultimately got divorced. Um, but Martha Mitchell was Jonathan Mitchell's wife. And essentially, Martha Mitchell was key in in the in the Watergate scandal. Ma- Martha Mitchell essentially would divulge. See, Mar- Martha Mitchell is like sort of like this key source in the Watergate scandal. She would divulge lots of information because she knew a lot. She'd often sit in, like listen in on her husband's phone calls. She'd often divulge that information with reporters. She was friends with lots of reporters and be very loquacious on those calls. <laughs> so uh, I guess that explains Mr. Mr. Mitchell's anger there. And also it was just sort of his relief. Like, whew, at least I don't spend a lot of my life with her. Um, John Mitchell was convicted on conspiracy. He was convicted on conspiracy charges, obstruction of justice, and perjury. He also lost his law license for his illegal and unethical behavior. Um, then, nearly two decades later, in 1988, George H.W. Bush won the presidential election and subsequently appointed William P. Barr to be his attorney general in 1991. Barr was a very controversial attorney general at the time. He faced criticism after he encouraged and reportedly advised President Bush to pardon the six figures implicated in the Iran-Contra affair. This was reporting from CBS News on Christmas Eve in 1992. Some new reverberations today to President Bush's Christmas Eve surprise, the pardoning of former Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger and several others in connection with the Iran-Contra allegations. Well, now the special prosecutor says it's the president who needs to explain some things. Jim Stewart is following developments and has today's report. While President Bush enjoyed the holidays with the grandkids at Camp David, White House spokesman Marlon Fitzwater was telling reporters the president will disclose, quote, everything in his files to Iran-Contra special prosecutor Lawrence Walsh, an offer Walsh today called too little too late. The real issue is why the notes weren't produced five years ago when the congressional investigation and the independent counsel's investigation had requested them, Walsh said through a spokesperson. Today's volleys were the latest in the six-year-old scandal, brought to a boil again Christmas Eve by Mr. Bush's pardon of former Defense Secretary Casper Weinberger and five others for their roles in the Arms for Hostages deal. Representative Lee Hamilton questioned the president's latest offer of full disclosure. Why go through this process of uh, dragging out this information bit by bit over a five, six-year period? Why wasn't it all just put out on the table to begin with? Uh, We could have saved ourselves an awful lot of work. In another development, the Los Angeles Times reported today that top Democrats, including House Speaker Tom Foley and Representative Les Aspen, President-elect Clinton's choice as defense secretary, secretly gave their blessings to the Weinberger pardon weeks ago, a development that caught some in Congress by surprise. You're going to find uh, differences of opinion among Democrats, perhaps even among Republicans. Do you or do you not uh, give a pardon to to Mr. Weinberger and, and the others? A very tough call. Once again, that was reporting from CBS News in 1992 on that controversial pardon story. In 2018, President Trump nominated Bill Barr to be the Attorney General of the United States. Barr had repeatedly issued public statements criticizing the Mueller report. Well, when he actually became Attorney General, he mischaracterized its findings. Instead of releasing the summary of the report that Special Counsel Robert Mueller and his team had already prepared, Barr essentially decided to release his own summary of the report, his own version. 
He also was held in criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to testify to Congress. As Attorney General, Bill Barr also uh, participated in the reducing of Roger Stone's prison sentence, upon which led, upon which essentially led to several federal prosecutors resigning in protest. He authorized the tear gassing and removal of peaceful protesters in Washington, D.C., so the president could walk down for a photo op. He also was he was also mentioned in the phone call with with the Ukrainian president, um, essentially that resulted in President Trump's impeachment. He was also attempted. He also attempted to cover up the whistleblower complaint after the first one was divulged. He also dropped charges against Michael Flynn, which resulted in about 1000 former Justice Department officials calling on him to resign. And there are other things that William Barr has done as well. Well, on Monday of this week, William Barr announced that he would resign for Christmas. Excuse me, he would resign before Christmas. Um, he will not go down in history well. He is one of the most controversial attorney generals since Richard Nixon. The politicization of the Justice Department has just been absolutely appalling. But his successor will not be good either. The man who will replace Barr and is expected to replace Barr is Jeffrey Rosen, the deputy AG, also known as the DAG. And um, he is also a controversial, he also has a controversial record of going after President Trump's political enemies and benefiting the president's friends. President-elect Joe Biden has promised to keep the Justice Department apolitical. We are going to need that, especially when it comes to reconstructing after the damage under Attorney General William Barr's leadership and under the Trump administration. There are approximately 31 days to the presidential inauguration, January 20th, 2021. Stay with us. Welcome back. Earlier this week, President-elect Joe Biden made a historic decision when he chose um, current Democratic Congresswoman Deb Holland to be the first Native American Secretary of the Interior. Here was her speaking just yesterday. Thank you. I'm proud to stand here on the ancestral homelands of the Lenape Tribal Nation. The President-elect and Vice President-elect are committed to a diverse cabinet, and I'm honored and humbled to accept their nomination for Secretary of the Interior. Growing up in my mother's Pueblo household made me fierce. My life has not been easy. I struggled with homelessness. I relied on food stamps and raised my child as a single mom. These struggles give me perspectives, though, so that I can help people to succeed. My grandparents, who were taken away from their families as children and sent to boarding school in an effort to destroy their traditions and identities, maintained our culture. This moment is profound when we consider the fact that a former Secretary of the Interior once proclaimed his goal to, quote, civilize or exterminate us. I'm a living testament to the failure of that horrific ideology. I also stand on the shoulders of my ancestors and all the people who have sacrificed so that I can be here. My dad was a U.S. Marine, and no matter where we were stationed, he made sure we spent time outdoors. Time with my dad in the mountains or on the beach, and time with my grandparents in the cornfield at Laguna taught me to respect the earth and to value our resources. I carry those values with me everywhere. I'm a product of their resilience. As our country faces the impacts of climate change and environmental injustice, the Interior Department has a role to address these challenges. 
The president-elect's goals, driven by justice and empowering communities who have shouldered the burdens of environmental negligence. And we will ensure that the decisions at Interior will once again be driven by science. We know that climate change can only be solved with participation of every department and of every community. Coming together in a common purpose, this country can and will tackle this challenge. The president-elect and vice president-elect know that issues under Interior's jurisdiction aren't simply about conservation. They're woven in with justice, good jobs, and closing the racial wealth and health gaps. This historic moment will not go by without the acknowledgement of the many people who have believed in me over the years and had the confidence in me for this position. I'll be fierce for all of us, for our planet and all of our protected land, and I'm honored and ready to serve. Thank you again. Once again, Democratic Congresswoman uh, Deb Holland speaking um, just yesterday. She will be the first. Um, she has been nominated by Joe Biden, uh, President-elect Joe Biden, to be the first Native American Secretary of the Interior, the first Native American to lead that department, especially when you look back into our nation's history and its roots. That is just a critical and, and just remarkably historic decision. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please make sure to share this episode with your family and friends. Also, um, subscribe if you want to, um, and please join the TJPS family. Um, thank you again for listening. We are going to be doing the last episode on this show on December 23rd. So December 23rd is going to be a Wednesday. So the last episode this year on the Jeremiah Patterson Show will be on December 23rd here on the Jeremiah Patterson Show. You don't want to miss that episode. Um, thank you again for listening and have a great day.